The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. Since early in 2015, we've had the pleasure of hearing the insights and interviews of the Nonprofit Hour's co-host, Julie Falk. But we're sad to say that, due to the demands of her numerous other commitments in our community, she has informed us that she will no longer be able to continue with our show. We've greatly enjoyed having Julie as a part of the team and have benefited from viewpoints and perspectives she has shared with us, and it is with that thought that we dedicate today's show to her. First up, we will be hearing the final interview that she recorded for us with Sage Metro Portland, which is a program run through Friendly House that gives support to elders of Portland's LGBT community in transitioning through different stages and experiences of aging. In the second half of the show, we will listen to a conversation with Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon, an organization that Julie Falk also served a pivotal role within during the same time that she's been with us on our program. We wish Julie all the best and are glad to know that a person of her caliber will be involved in vital police accountability issues in the future through her role on the Portland Citizen Review Committee. So now to start the show, here's Julie. Hello, my name is Julie Falk and this is the Nonprofit Hour brought to you by the Media Institute. Today we're talking to Maya Chamberlain, Director of Community Services at Friendly House, and Glenn Ulmer, the Volunteer Advocacy Chair of the SAGE Advisory Team. We'll be talking about Friendly House, the organization, and also about SAGE it's import- and its important work serving elders and the LGBT community here in Portland. Hi, Maya. Hi. Thanks for having us. Glad you're here. Um, so tell us uh, more about Friendly House, this organization that houses the SAGE program here in Portland. So Friendly House was founded 85 years ago um, as a settlement house. Uh, a model of, of social service delivery that started in Europe during the Industrial Revolution and came to the West Coast during the Depression, where one of a handful of settlement houses still in the area. Um, the idea is about, originally started where volunteers would come into impoverished neighborhoods and settle into these neighborhoods and help to coordinate whatever the services were that that particular neighborhood needed. and. For us in Northwest Portland during the depression, it was the lumber, the lumber mills were shutting down. So people were in need of, of job training, childcare for their kiddos so that they could go out and work. And that was sort of the, our beginning at Friendly House. And since that time we have grown and evolved and changed as the neighborhood needs have changed. Um, and currently we have three core program areas. One is our, our children's program, our community recreation and education program, and then our community services, which are really geared towards the needs of older adults, and then Sage Metro Portland, which is specifically around uh, the needs of LGBT older adults. That's really fascinating. I wonder how many of our listeners are aware that there are still um, organizations with the legacy of being a settlement house in our community. 
it's pretty amazing and there's not a lot left so Mm -hmm. we we we're very proud of that has it always been known as friendly house yeah yeah 85 years Wow. Um, and, and tell us a little bit about the community programs and your children's program. Who do they serve and who are they open to? So our children's programs, we have runs the gamut from um, a play group for infants, toddlers, and their caregivers. We have um, a preschool program, of which I am a proud graduate <laughs> myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my daughter is second generation. Wow. And then after school care for about 120 kids each day who come from Chapman Elementary. Mm-hmm. And then during the summer, we run a series of summer camps. Um, the community recreation, <clears throat> excuse me, community recreation education program is is really our community center where we have a fitness room, gymnasium, um, tai chi classes, yoga classes, workshops, community building events. Community building is core to Friendly House's mission. Um, and then um, our senior program, which has been operating under a contract with Multnomah County Aging Disability and Veterans Services since the early 70s, where our entire goal is to work with older adults to support them um, to age in place so that they can stay in their homes and communities that they're connected to without having to transition to a higher level of care. And tell us a little bit more, how, how local is Friendly House? Are, are your the people who participate in your programs really in Northwest Portland, in the neighborhood, or, or does it extend out to the wider metro or Portland area? It kind of depends on the program. Um, mm-hmm. Much of the folks who use our community center do come from the neighborhood, but not always. Um, many of the children's programs are really geared towards neighborhood kids. Um, in our senior program, we're working exclusively with with older adults in Northwest Portland. SAGE is actually, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the exception where we're really working within Multnomah County, but also the Tri-County area. Um, the further you go outside of Portland proper, the greater the need mm-hmm. for these services is. And tell us a little bit about SAGE and how it came to be a program at Friendly House. And let us, oh, it's an acronym. So what does it, it stand is. for? <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a frog. Um, services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders. And um, we actually started as Elder Resource Alliance in 2001. And it came out of our work with older adults where we were really able to see that this was a cohort that wasn't accessing services at the same rate as their heterosexual counterparts. Um, There were studies done at the time that were indicating that LGBT older adults were um, way more at risk for isolation, depression, hospitalization, addiction, um, but had a lot of concerns about accessing traditional mainstream senior services in senior centers. Um, We have an extraordinary executive director who's been an advocate um, and an out lesbian since the 70s and and brought together a group of providers and community members to really begin talking about this issue. Um, When we started in 2001, we were very focused on doing diversity training. So we brought an elder, we had an elder panel group of folks who were willing to share their stories about what it was like to try to access housing, social services, um, medical care. And we were out in the community talking to other providers in social services, medical profession, housing profession, trying to help them understand both the strengths and the unique needs of this population. Um, simultaneously, we were developing an activities program, an opportunity to build community among LGBT elders. So there were meetups, and still are, meetups, 
support groups, um, field trips, things of that nature to create opportunities um, for folks to come together and um, combat the isolation, the depression, loneliness. Um, since that time, um, we have affiliated with SAGE USA, which is a national advocacy organization, I believe the, the oldest and largest in the country that's very focused on the needs of LGBT older adults. Um, and that affiliation happened in 2012. Um, and it just gave us access to more tools and resources and supports for the community. We also have Glenn Ulmer here. He's a volunteer with the advocacy. Um, uh, he's a volunteer advocacy chair with the SAGE advisory team. Uh, Glenn, can you tell us how you became involved with SAGE here in Portland? Sure, uh, and good morning. My first involvement started at the very end of 2010. I actually retired from my profession in 2010 and was looking for an opportunity to do some volunteer work. And the executive director originally approached me about working with Friendly House um, and SAGE, which was not known as SAGE then, but was known as Gay and Gray at that time, and um, wanted me to be perhaps on the board of Friendly House. And I said, I really want to direct my volunteer activities to one particular area. And the Gay and Gray aspect became uh, very intriguing to me. She, she identified a problem for me that I had never really thought about before. And that is that a lot of elders had fought for a lot of rights through their life, had be, had fought hard to become out in their communities, out with their families, out with their friends and neighbors. And then many go back into the closet when they get into their 60s and 70s and 80s when they become less independent and more dependent. Particularly that would happen when they started needing medical services and housing services. And the focus then became I need to have this housing or medical need taken care of, but I can't really be who I am. And I just thought that was really tragic that people who fought so hard uh, going back into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s to become out and independent would have to hide their sexual orientation. And so that appealed to me. So SAGE is a program that you can participate in. Um, how many participants um, do you have? It depends upon the kinds of activities on the mailing list, for example, which is because we're not strictly a membership-based organization. Mm -hmm. So the best way is to look at the mailing list. And there's hundreds of people that are on the mailing list. Oftentimes, participation in events can be anywhere from 25 people to 100 people. When we had um, our annual uh, conference uh, or expo, we would sometimes have several hundred people at those events. So it really is varies all, all over the map. But I would say roughly in terms of the, the outreach into the community and the people who want to know about the SAGE activities, it's literally five, six hundred people, mm -hmm. something like and that. And those are available to anybody in, in Oregon, in, in the area? You don't have to have a certain residency status? Mm, correct. I always tell people that it's the SAGE Metro Portland. So primarily it serves the Metro Portland region, including Clark County. But it's really open to people throughout the state. One of the things that I've done as part of the advocacy work is to reach out and network with a number of other organizations around the states. And there's several coalitions that are getting started or have been started in the last year that reach out to communities in Salem, Eugene, Medford, Bend, because the needs are really great over east in eastern Oregon and southern Oregon as well. These issues around... Um, you know, seeking medical attention, um, housing. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying about how this can be a time that is um, where where 
people may feel like they need to go back into the closet in order to get the care and services they need. So uh, at the advocacy and the policy level, how, how is SAGE working to address these issues in our area? Well, one of the things we do, as I mentioned a moment ago, is just the networking with other organizations because we find that there's a lot of strength in numbers there. And so by working with other other similar organizations, we, we've done that. Then there's federal issues and there's local issues that range from housing to um, at the federal level, for example, we were involved with working with Representative Bonamici's office on the Older Americans Act and had her come and listen to us and listen to the issues that we cared about and to show our appreciation for that act and hopefully get that act reauthorized, um, which, which instead is just funded each year by continuing resolution as opposed to really being re completely reauthorized. So uh, it's it's really all, all over the map. We do a lot of educational work too, and, and advocacy, in my opinion, is a um, very broad term. A lot of people think, gee, what is advocacy? That must mean that we go down to Salem. And I do go down to Salem from time to time, usually with other groups and other organizations. But advocacy can even be things like the housing survey that we worked on, because housing and isolation are really the two biggest issues that, that LGBT elders face. Tell us more about the housing survey. Sure. I, Maya, Maya, do you want to take that one? Because you worked sure. more directly on that one. So. Of all the calls that we get in a given week, I would say housing is the number one pressing concern is how do I know if I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm retiring, I'm going to a fixed income, I'm looking for subsidized housing or affordable housing. And how do I know when I get there that I'm going to be welcomed by, you know, either the administrative community or the community of my peers? Um, what is going to prevent me from having to retreat? into the closet and you know for years we've been trying to sort of get our head around that how, how can we assure a place for somebody um <clears throat> what what we came to and and just just to add to glenn is an incredible example of how our program moves forward we have extraordinary volunteers at every level of the program driving and steering our initiatives and so the the work we've done around housing is really led by our community so we have a um a group of folks who are very focused on this issue of housing and they are from the community they 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 know the issues firsthand um, so we worked with them in developing a survey for older adult communities it, it, running the gamut from long-term care to independent housing adult foster care homes um, places where older adults may end up at some point um, and came up with a list of questions that we felt got to the root of how communities can become welcoming. So there are questions for the administration around, do they offer, um, do they offer benefits for employees who, who um, have a same-sex partner? Do they, um, do they do outreach specifically to the LGBT community? Are there symbols around the building that help people to see that they're included? Um, and those are some of the kinds of things that we ask these housing providers and also offer training to them. So the elder panel will go out and help them kind of get their heads around these issues. For a lot of people, it's not that they don't want to be inclusive. It's just that they've never thought about it um, specifically. And how, how can people access the survey and this information that you've compiled? 
Thank you. Um, yeah, so we just, we released our second edition of the Housing Guide brochure and are doing outreach now to housing providers for the 2016 edition. Um, and they can contact us directly at Friendly House and anyone, they'll get routed to me and we will get them going in the process. And that's for housing providers and also for people who are looking for housing. They can either give us a call or go to the website, go to the Friendly House website, which has the um, LG, uh, the guide to LGBT-friendly senior housing in Oregon. There's a link to it right on our website. Well, we're going to take a break and listen to some music. So Maya, what have you brought for us to listen to? Well, one of my favorites is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Great one. All right. A lot of people or, or um, folks that you contacted may not have these policies or practices mm-hmm. in place, but they wanted the training and they wanted the, the help. Um, in general, how did you find the, the kind of state of housing for LGBT seniors in our community? Well, you know, it, it, uh, it runs the gamut. Where we have focused our time and energy and resources is with partners who want to do better. So there are folks for whom this is not a vested interest and we're, we're not out to try to penalize anybody. What we wanna do is support housing communities that have a vested interest in this project. So that, that's where our focus has been. And I can say that um, those folks have been extraordinary. Um, they, they have jumped through our hoops. They've delivered training not only to their staff, but to their residents, to their community partners. Um, and, and that's been a really encouraging experience. Um, 
And so, yeah, the folks, the folks that you see in our guide are people who are really interested in this issue and want to be creating welcoming environments. We like talking about the housing survey, though, because we like people who are shopping for uh, living facilities to ask about it. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is afraid to ask about it when they're an elder LGBT individual. And they might say, I saw a facility that I was looking at, at possibly for housing, and it had a welcoming symbol on its door, mm -hmm. but you don't. And mm -hmm. cause them to actually think about, gee, maybe we should. Because sometimes when we go out to survey company, uh, housing facilities, they, they kind of feel like there isn't really a need or they don't feel like they have a demand. Mm -hmm. Or they will say, we don't have anybody that's LGBT in our facility. And they really don't really know. One of the th interesting stories I thought was when someone said, well, we don't have anybody in our facility. But then one resident actually said, but I have a niece or a nephew that is LGBT, and I would like them to feel welcomed when they mm -hmm. come here to visit me. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Do you do you do um, within Sage many um, intergenerational programs? We do. It's it's very successful. Um, we find that um, particularly LGBT youth and older adults have a lot in common. Right? Mm -hmm. They're both at these at these interesting places in their lives where the youth are really trying to gain independence. Many older adults are trying to hang on to it. So something as basic as transportation is really a common bond, you know, that it's, and so we'll partner with Outside In or other other groups who are serving youth and, and um, put together a meal or a, a social of some sort. And it, I would say, of all of the things we do, the ones that get talked about the most are those intergenerational gatherings. Do you plan to do more of those in the future? You know, I, it's one of those things where it's always on the to-do list. We need to be doing more. And, and so, yes, we're very open to that. It's just a, a capacity issue. Sure, yeah. Um, so how do people find out about um, SAGE and the services and the programs that you offer? So a few ways. One, we have a really active Facebook page. We really encourage people to go to the Facebook page. We'll get information updated regularly. We have a quarterly newsletter that goes out. And if folks are interested, we're happy to get them um, either a hard copy or an electronic copy. Um, the Friendly House website um, is a source of some information. And then we do bi-monthly e-blasts that reminds folks of things that are coming up in the community. So all of those things, or certainly call us. And you said you rely on volunteers, but what other kinds of support um, does SAGE need from the community? Well, volunteers is a big one. Um, help us get the word out. This is really, um, this is a group of folks that, that needs some attention. You know, too long um, LGBT older adults and um, have been kind of pushed under the carpet. Older adults in general and then the LGBT community and you put the two together and it's sort of a double whammy of invisibility. Um, so we really encourage folks to be thinking about this issue. Also if you're aware of an LGBT older adult that that may need help um, and you don't know how to get them that help, give us a call. We do provide um, case management services for folks who are living anywhere in Multnomah County. So somebody who needs some help with some housekeeping or coordinating medical appointments or Glenn is also a friendly visitor. So we have folks who are really vulnerable, want to get out. You, you should 
Oh, I'd like to hear about the friendly yeah. visiting program. Well, it, it, it can cover a wide range, but my personal experience is I uh, help an older woman who likes to get out and go to the theater, and she has transportation issues as well as mobility issues. And so about every other month we get together and we usually go to a show that we both want to see, but you, it's it's always one that she wants to see. And I will pick her up and take her to the theater and escort her to her seat and get her home. And so she didn't really have a really good way to access in the evening in particular those kinds of events. And so that's part of what I do as a friendly visitor. What shows have you seen with her? Oh boy, we've, the, we've, we've again, we've used the word the gamut, but it started out with a Cirque du Soleil uh -huh. event which we did and then we've gone to a number of things at artist repertory theater and uh, uh, portland center stage i mean we really go all over the place she likes to see a lot of things at triangle also mm -hmm. so that's a that's a really great program and was one of those very clearly mutually beneficial programs for you know volunteers and participants um how how many participants do you have in, in that that kind of program um so right now we have about 25 folks who are receiving case management services. Not all of those people choose to have a friendly visitor. Um, right now we have a handful of friendly visitor matches. Um, and, and one thing I need to mention too is our services are really geared towards LGBT older adults, but the program, the opportunity for engagement is for allies of any age, um, whether you identify as lesbian or gay, there is a role for you. Um, whether it's volunteering or to help set up for a party, we have our holiday party coming up in December. We just got done with our barbecue for one-time events or for you know long-term relationship building like what Glenn's doing. There's really an opportunity for everybody. So. Maya and Glenn, we're wrapping up. What do you want people to know? What What do you want people to take away from um, from our talk today about the needs of LGBT elders in our community and the work of SAGE? So we talk a, a lot about the services and the needs of the community. Um, what we don't spend enough time talking about is the strengths and resilience. and. If you have not hugged an LGBT elder today, you should. <laughs> These are some of the most extraordinary people I've ever had the opportunity to work with, really pioneers in a movement that has, that has just blown up. And that's not by accident. That is because these are extraordinary individuals who have worked for decades to um, advocate for rights and um, to be free from discrimination. And they need our support now. They have given everything they have. And we really look to the community now to, to help assure that they don't have to go back to the closet and to make sure that they, they can continue their work in the community. And it's up to us to help support that. I would just add that we all know about how the population, the boomers are coming along and how the population is aging. And by most estimates, there are probably three to 5,000 LGBT elders turning 65 in Oregon every year. That's a large growing population. And there's going to be a lot of vital active elders and there's going to be elders in need. So whether you're interested in being a volunteer or whether you need services, uh, we know there are a lot of you out there. Are there 
um, projects around archiving the stories of people from mm -hmm. this community? There are, we would love to be able to do more of that, and we mm -hmm. haven't, but Glappen is an organization that's really very focused on capturing the stories of our LGBT heroes. Um, and Sage Nationally, which we're a part of, mm -hmm. does do story um, documentation. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been the Nonprofit Hour. We've been talking to Maya Chamberlain, Director of Community Services at Friendly House, and Glenn Ulmer, Volunteer Advocacy Chair of the SAGE Advisory Team at Friendly House. Thank you so much. Thank you so much thank for you. having us, Julie. All right. And now we're going to be taking our final musical break. What is, what's the last piece you have in store for us today? I will survive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit MediaMakingChange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and their summer documentary program. The Nonprofit Hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Continental Bank and BusinessWorks. Find out more at therightbank.com or businessworkspdx.com. And now back to the show. Here's uh, Phil Bussey's conversation with Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour, and I am pleased to have in our new studios uh, Emily Evans with the Women's Foundation of Oregon. How are you doing? I'm well, Phil. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Women's Foundation. So, you guys are you're you're not a nonprofit, then you're a foundation. We are. I mean, technically under the tax code, uh, a public foundation is still a nonprofit, but that's um, that's what we are. We're a, a house for philanthropic resources that we regrant on behalf of the women of Oregon. So you just said a lot of stuff. Let's 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 go through it a little bit. So, the Women's Foundation of Oregon receives grants, and then you regrant them. We actually receive donations from okay. the public and our members writ large, and then we regrant them um, to invest in women all over the state. Uh, invest in women? How? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I mean, that's... so that's a good question. We're um we're pretty the foundation the Women's Foundation of Oregon is a somewhat new entity, but it was born out of two tinier foundations that actually focused on women in the Portland metro area, and they merged and then transitioned to be a public foundation that focused statewide. So we actually have a pretty robust history, uh, but we are, as a state organization, pretty new. 
Well, let's let's talk about the history in a little bit. I, I still want to get an idea of, of like, who are some of the people that have you guys already started to issue out grants? We are doing two grants this year um, that focus on the legacy of the of the two foundations who came together. And there'll be two twenty five thousand dollar grants um, that are given to direct service organizations in the Portland metro area. Can you say who? Yeah, we can't. We're in the we're in the, a really exciting process of issuing letters of intent and inviting people to apply. And interestingly, um, some some foundations uh, obviously give very very large grants, but the average uh, size grant in the state of Oregon is only ten thousand dollars. So these are actually going to be pretty substantial grants um, for organizations here in Portland. Absolutely. I mean, twenty five thousand dollars. It's uh, and and these are going towards uh, program costs. Are they going towards capacity? What are the grants going towards? It's pretty exciting, actually. That um, we're we're trying to structure them. Uh, we're trying to be a different type of foundation and pursue a different type of philanthropy. So they're actually structured more like awards, um, sort of similar to the MacArthur Genius Awards, where you just get it because you've been awesome for a number of years. Fantastic. And they have you have a lot of flexibility in their expenditure. So the people who eventually get the grants and awards will will be able to spend it on operational costs or capital expenses or programmatic expenses. And it's really a wide open sky of what they can spend on, which is pretty cool. That's great. And and so how did um, how did how did you get to this place? I mean, there's obviously <laughs> uh, there there was discussions about uh, bringing together a couple of different organizations or discussions about why there, there was the need. Um, let's let's pick that apart a little bit. Why? What's the history of this of the the Women's Foundation of Oregon? Yeah, it's actually pretty exciting. So um, Oregon has a really long history of generous women coming together to support other women in the state. And the the two foundations that came together that merged were called the Portland Women's Foundation and the Women's Care Foundation. And they have similar histories um, the, in here in the Portland area. The Portland Women's Foundation, which was formerly the Portland Women's Union, actually goes back to the 1800s. It was one of the longest operating nonprofits in the state. Our EIN number, for those who want to get wonky, um, um, is actually from 1932. And that's because that was the first time they started issuing EIN numbers. Wow. Wow. So it's super old. Um, and it... it it uh, was founded by a woman named Anna Lewis Mann, and uh, Mrs. Piddock, who owned the Piddock Mansion with her husband, um, was a member. And they essentially they they created this philanthropic space because young women were coming to Portland, and it was Stumptown, you know, like it was rough and tumble, and Absolutely. they were coming and falling into all sort of unseemly careers and difficult life paths. Uh, so they created um, this women's union. It was a building that offered both housing and education for young single women that were newly arrived in Portland. I mean, it is fascinating. I think, you know, Portland obviously has uh, some of those vestiges of the Shanghai tunnels and and Old Town, but it was a really rough town. It was rugged, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it was was bars and taverns and ship hands and ranchers and... Loggers. Loggers. And and then on the other side, as you mentioned, you had the Piddocks, you had uh, the Lads, you had... um, moneyed families. You had mm-hmm. bankers. Uh, so that's interesting, that that connection. Why, I mean, how were women, single women ending up in Portland? Do you know, do you know that history? Some of the of- history. I mean, I think it was, it was the land of, I mean, the West was a land of opportunity for a lot of folks, right? And it, there was a lot of economic opportunity out here for men, but there were also, I think, pretty adventurous women in the late 1800s who were willing to pull up roots from wherever they were and make their way out to the to the Golden West. And um, and I think they found it, some of them at least, a rougher than they expected when they got here. And that's sort of where the Women's Union came in. And so obviously, uh, uh, 
Times are different. Yes, times have changed, <laughs> um, and uh, and the, those um, those prior foundations changed iterations a bunch through the years as the needs sort of matured. Um, so they were operating this space for women for a long time, and then finally sold their last property um, in I think the the seventies or early eighties, and that's what f- created that it was the sale of the Martha Washington Hotel, which is in downtown Portland, and um, and it created the corpus for the foundation, the sale of that building. Okay. And the Women's Care Foundation had a similar story, actually. There's two really great pictures of um, of our old founders. And uh, the the founder of the Women's Care Foundation, her name was Mary Rosenberg, and she operated a convalescent home. And there's this tremendous picture of her and two of her friends wearing their furs and their 50s outfits and their sort of baggy pantyhose. And they're, they're, they have a shovel. And they're at the groundbreaking, and they're really, like, working hard on the shovel. It's really a delightful picture. Um, and they, the sale of their home, um, the convalescent home, did the same thing, and it provided a corpus. So instead of direct service, they were transitioned to being small private foundations that were granting to direct service organizations. I, I, I want to hover on that a little bit. So the the two foundations that have that that merged to form uh, the Women's Foundation of Oregon. So it was actually their property owners. They were originally, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's that, I mean, so that's that's both different and fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, can you just point out, if, go back and point out some of those buildings that you were talking about? Yeah. So one of them was the the Martha Washington Hotel, which um, which was operated as this sort of um, terrific home for for young women and and an educational space. And um, and then in the when the the need for that kind of housing and education for young women sort of lapsed into the um, in the late twentieth century. They decided to sell the space. And then the um, the Women's Care Foundation, um, they actually operated, it was the Women's Convalescent Association, I think. Um, there, I have board members who know way more about the history than I do. But um, And they, they operated a convalescent home for women who were trying to recoup in an area uh, in an era before Medicare. And there, if you were, were less fortunate, you couldn't stay in the hospital long enough to actually recover. And often it was difficult for you to go home. So they created a convalescent space for women. Um, and I, I don't know where that building was. The picture of them doing the ground baking looks like it's in... A, like a Portland, random Portland neighborhood. So I think it may, who knows where it was. Uh, I'm sure it's in the, in the archives, but, um, but they sold that um, building and it created the corpus. So it's interesting to see these uh, direct service organizations transition into foundations. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, that your foundation, that the Women's Foundation of Oregon is uh, pulling some of that history. I, I mean, Portland very much seems to be at this point where uh a lot of new people have arrived in the last 10, 15 years, and there's suddenly this renewed history or interest in the history of Portland. Mm-hmm. You are coming from a different, and we'll get to that after our song break, but you're a third-generation Oregonian? I am, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, Emily Evans with the Women's Foundation of Oregon, and did you bring any music for us today? I did, yeah. I brought a couple of songs. Um, do you want to, let's start with one that, um, that I really love. It's actually, uh, Dar Williams, As Cool As I Am, um, which, which goes way back to my Bryn Mawr days and, um, is a pretty awesome feminist anthem. Let's take a listen. Yeah, there was a time I didn't like the love, I liked the climate. She was no sister then, was running out of time and one minor. And I was afraid, like you are, when you're too young to know the diamond. And so I watched the way you take your fear and pour the horizon. The point you have a word for every woman you can lay your eyes on. Like you own just because you bought the time. And you turn to me, you say you hope I'm not threatened. Oh, 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 I'm 
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am sitting with Emily Evans, Women's Foundation of Oregon. Uh, thanks for that song selection. Yeah, absolutely. And so so we've been talking about uh, some of the history of uh, these direct service organizations uh, that, that were providing uh, services, support uh, for, for women in, well, since, since Portland really began in the 1860s, 18, yeah. late 19th century. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your history. Sure. Uh, so you're a third generation Oregonian. I am. Yep. I was born and raised in, down in Ashland in Southern Oregon, and my uh, my grandparents and my parents and my kid brother still live there, um, and and it's great. I um, I just came back home to Oregon about two years ago after twelve long years on the East Coast, and I'm very very happy to be home. <laughs> How did so your grandparents moved here? Is yes, that, that's that was... right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both wound up in Ashland. My um, grandfather was from uh, Southern California, actually near Disneyland in Anaheim. They had an orange farm down there, and he moved here. And then my grandmother's family moved um, because of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl from Iowa all over the West, and then finally ended up in Ashland. Wow, that's uh, that's. I mean, it's quite a history. Yeah. 
And and so after all of that and your family having roots, you decided to move out east. I did. Yeah, I, I was sort of lured out there by um, by undergrad. I really wanted to go to Bryn Mawr College, which is a women's a small women's college mm-hmm. outside of Philadelphia. Of yeah, very well, good school. Yeah, where Catherine Hepburn went, and um, and it was uh, it was the right place for me. And I didn't quite realize how very big our country was at the time. <laughs> when you're 18, it seems um, somehow much smaller, and and it took me a while to get home. <laughs> oh, and the, there's not a, a major airport in Ashland, which makes it a little tricky. Oh, it too. was. It really was. And they put the airport in the Rogue Valley at I think the least optimal place. So I don't know that I had an unproblematic uh, flight home for about 12 years <laughs> straight. <laughs> and and what what were you doing then after school, after after you graduated? Yeah, I moved all over um, the East Coast. I lived in Richmond, Virginia for a while, and then I went to get my master's in public administration, focusing actually on philanthropy at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University mm-hmm. in upstate New York. And then I um, moved down to Washington, D.C. to work at a think tank there uh, for four years before finally making my way home. What what brought you back to Oregon? I've been trying, honestly, to get back ever since I graduated from Bryn Mawr. It was just a more circuitous uh, path than I had hoped. But I um, I eventually promised that come 2013 that I would be out here and that I would never leave again, and that's still my plan. <laughs> well, well, welcome back belatedly. And, Thank and, you. Uh, I mean, in those that, that decade plus that you're gone, I mean, uh, things have changed in Oregon. Absolutely. Uh, what 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 have you noticed that's different, and uh, you know, within the scope of of the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's um, it really is a sort of different feel here. I remember when I was growing up, Portland was not, you know, the Portlandia and the sort of national icon of. Um, young liberal hipsterdom that it is now. It was just sort of the biggest city in the state where everybody kind of went if they wanted to make their way economically in non-small town Oregon, you know. And it was, um, I think I think the demographics were, were changing and shifting still, and um, the ducks really stank. Um, so, <laughs> so that's a big difference. Um, but as far as, um, as far as women I- investing in other women and sort of, I think, Oregon women have always been a kind of tough breed. Like they're, they've always been rugged and um, and more. Um, I guess I'll say somehow more adventurous and less willing to take a bunch from people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it's it's really great to come home and feel like I'm in that environment again. But the one thing that I think was missing that the foundation is now providing a lot of other states and a lot of other cities have a women's foundation, which is sort of meant to take the generosity of women and transition it into giving and grants that make an impact across Mm -hmm. the state. Um, So lots of other states have them. Lots of other cities have them. But Oregon, besides the Portland Women's Foundation and the Women's Care Foundation, which were very tiny and focused just on Portland, uh, has never had that at the statewide level. And I think it's um, it's really been an absence that has been felt kind of around the state, both in terms of philanthropic dollars, but also in terms of some of the things that a foundation can do at the state level that that other players just can't. Um, And I'm really happy that we're in that space now. This is Phil Bussey, and it's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon. Um, I, you know, some of the things that you're, you you just said a lot of things. Um, but I do think that um, Oregon has uh, a, a very distinct uh, definition of, of strong women. Um, you know, and just immediately some things jump out to mind, whether you're talking about, um, you know, the, a former governor uh, whether you're talking about Bitch Magazine, uh, whether you're talking about Carrie Brownstein, mm-hmm. uh, there there's a quite a quite a number of examples, as well as uh, support organizations. I mean, Rock and Roll Camp for Girls mm-hmm. is a great example. Um, you know, so where 
where are you where is the Women's Foundation of Oregon fitting into that? I mean, are you trying to take those as and create mentors or are you trying to encourage uh, those those types of people to go even further? Yeah, that's it's a good question. So I think that some of the things, some of the niches that we're trying to fill that often are crowded in other states, but sort of haven't quite been occupied in the way that I think they could here mm-hmm. uh, in in Oregon, are some things that are really focused on statewide presence. Um, that if you're a direct service organization in a given community, you often don't have your eye on because you're busy serving the people in your neighborhood or your town or in the population that you're trying to serve. So there are things like data and research. The last uh, comprehensive report on the well-being of women in Oregon was produced in 1998. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So uh, using data from the 1990 census. So like Mm -hmm. Reagan had just left office. (laughs) Um, And uh, statewide advocacy. I think there's a a tremendous opportunity at at the state house here um, in and and with the executive branch. But there isn't a a massive force for women at the advocacy at the statewide level. Mm -hmm. Um, Opportunities for networking and uh, providing a learning community of service providers, um, capacity building, as you mentioned, uh, for, for some of those direct service providers and women leaders. It's just uh, kind of a lot of stuff that's up, up right ab- at the level above the direct service level that um, that hasn't really um, been resourced before. And that's really, I think, part of the niche that we're hoping to occupy. It would also seem like a really big challenge that you've got, you have decided to take these two Direct services uh, that were that were focused in Portland and go statewide. Yeah. Um, the difference between Portland and Medford and Portland and even Bend or Portland and the Grand are are quite big. Absolutely. Um, you know, certainly politically, but I'd also think in terms of uh, definitions of leadership, mm-hmm. uh, roles that that women play in uh, whether we're talking business leadership or we're talking political leadership. I mean, is that is that a challenge that you're Dealing with a pretty uneven uh, sensibility there. Yeah, well, I think I think um, for sure that I have firsthand experience with it with the direct differences between you know small town Oregon and and Portland, mm-hmm. and um, and we see that a lot in a lot of states. But I think especially here, there's that there's that central metro area, and then there's the rest of the state, and we're really trying to bridge that divide as as best we can. Uh, I think the one of the things that really matters uh, to to small town Oregon or rural Oregon is is boots on the ground, somebody in that community that knows the knows the foundation and can be an ambassador for us in that place. So that's something we're really focusing on. I think Oregon also, uh, the the proof's in the pudding a lot for, for Oregonians. So until we start to make grants at a statewide level, mm-hmm. I think um, I think we probably uh, won't be viewed as a, actually a statewide organization. So that day is coming soon when, when we are actually distributing resources to the whole state. Uh, this is Phil Bussey with the Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with Emily Evans from the Women's Foundation. How about, an, Emily, how about another song? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a real throwback, and it can go back to my childhood in Ashland. It's um, Sister Suffragette from Mary Poppins, which is a classic. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats And dauntless crusaders for women's votes Though we adore men individually We agree that as a group they're rather stupid Cast off the shackles of yesterday Shoulder to shoulder into the fray Our daughters' daughters will adore us And they'll sing in grateful chorus Well done, Sister Suffragette From Kensington 
Boston to Billingsgate, one hears the restless cries from every corner of the land. Womankind arise! Political equality and equal rights with men. Take heart for Mrs. Pankhurst has been clapped in irons again. No more the meek and mild subservience we. We're fighting for our rights militantly. Never you fear! shackles of yesterday and shoulder to shoulder into the fray our daughters daughters will adore us and they'll sing in grateful chorus well done well done well done sister Uh, fantastic. That's That was a song from Mary Poppins. Uh, it's a great way to, to get the day going. This is <laughs> Phil Bussey. That's the Nonprofit Hour. We were talking with Emily Evans, who is uh, working with the Women's Foundation of Oregon, which is a a new but uh, a, a new foundation, but coming from a very historic uh, background. And how do uh, you said that you're looking for board members? You, uh, how are people? How can people get involved? How can they find out more about the Women's Foundation of Oregon? Yeah, absolutely. Well, they can first and foremost go to our new website, and that's um, womensfoundationoforegon.org. Uh, you can also search for us, and we'll come up. Um, but the the probably the coolest thing, honestly, about transitioning from these two smaller private foundations to a public foundation is that. It's a space for everybody now. We're a member-based organization, but everybody can be a member, um, which is different from the way that these foundations had behaved before. It, w- it was all board member run. Um, mm-hmm. And they were they were very inclusive boards, but, you know, there were only 15 or 20 of them at any given time. So this is really a change, and it's pretty exciting. Um, so anybody, anybody can be a member. Our basic membership is at $10 a month, but we also have a scholarship program. So truly anybody can join us and help. Um, invest in the well-being of Oregon women, which is which is pretty exciting. There are uh, a lot of women's foundations that set their membership levels pretty high, twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars, and um, and that works great for some organizations. But it's not who we felt like we were. We were big about inclusion, and there are a ton of women who want to get involved in this who can't give at that level. Um, so I'm happy to report we already have two hundred members after only uh, being open for about a month, um, and uh, and they're from all different ages and. and and um, sectors and uh, economic levels. It's great. And what, what does membership get somebody? Yeah, so we're, we're in the process of defining some of that. But right now, what, um, probably one of the most exciting things that, that you get to do when you're a member is vote on our grant finalists. So these um, two big grants that we're giving, which are really going to be pretty significant for folks, we're going to vet it down to a really great list of three to four finalists. And then all of our members will get to vote. So it's pretty exciting that for $10 a month, you can help direct $50,000 worth of resources. Absolutely. Yeah. And let's try to uh, focus that picture a little bit more about who some of these people, uh, these potential grant recipients will be. Um, what what is what are the priority issues of the Women's Foundation? I mean, is, is that how yeah. you're looking at it? Or is it more of a crowdsourcing um, model where you're letting your members decide what the priorities should be? So that's a really, really good question. I think that um, we are trying to to be a part of this new wave of philanthropy that doesn't necessarily 
pick their giving priorities by uh, issue area or by outcome or by population so that you say, oh, we only stand for domestic violence, but we don't stand for sexual assault and, and sort of box ourselves into these particular um, issue areas. Uh because I think that that doesn't won't allow us to be as nimble and flexible as we might be mm-hmm. um, in in the space that that we're operating in. We aren't a large foundation right now. We have about five million in our in capital assets, and that means that we'll probably grant somewhere between a hundred thousand and a quarter of a million a year, which isn't small, but it isn't giant. And so I keep I, my my board and I are really uh, settled on on the phrase that we can't give big right now, so we have to give smart. Mm-hmm. And um, and really boxing ourselves into a particular set of like niche areas or issues is not where we uh, where we want to be right now. So we're uh, we're trying to instead focus on the types of change we can create mm-hmm. and apply that to a broad set of issues, whether that be capacity building or advocacy or research and data, and focus on those tools that are in our toolbox mm-hmm. and apply them where we see the most opportunity for impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where should people start looking for uh, the Women's Foundation of Oregon? I mean, you said online and and yeah. uh, becoming members and absolutely yeah we have um, we have a, uh, a nascent but growing social media presence so we're on Twitter and Facebook um, we have a terrific Instagram account <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, the the website's a good place to tap in. We're also going to be showing up um, at, at quite a few sort of smaller affiliate events um, throughout the next year and uh, and hopefully we'll um, we'll just be in the conversation a bit more um, and we'll, folks should look to us for um, some exciting announcements about research and reporting that's going to come out um, and uh, again the opportunity to be a part of our annual meeting where we will announce the winners of this year's grant making process. Emily Evans with the Women's Foundation of Oregon, thank you so much for coming in and thanks for sharing this snapshot of a really unique period in the, in the organization's history. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. We've now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page or free podcasts on the Apple iTunes store. If you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about an organization we should profile on a future show, please send an email to nph at mediamakingchange.org. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Maya Chamberlain and Glenn Ulmer of Friendly House in Sage Metro Portland, and Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our host, Phil Bussey, and a fond farewell to our co-host, Julie Falk, KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM, and to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week, and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.